Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. My guest this week is Timothy Carney, author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse, in which he gives sociological contours to what seems to be a crisis of meaning and loneliness, um, and that that crisis seems increasingly to be driving not just the politics of our era, but our underlying divisions in society more broadly. So he is uh, a perfect perfect guest to try to delve into some of these questions um, and what our divisions mean and what our erosion of community has really done, not only to our politics, but to ourselves. Uh, Tim is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the senior columnist at the Washington Examiner. Um, He has been published and interviewed everywhere from the Atlantic, New York Times, and MSNBC to Wall Street Journal and Fox News. So uh, welcome, Tim, to High Noon. It's it's great to have you here. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so you point out in this book and, and pretty openly, um, you say that this is a book about Trump voters, but not about Trump, um, in that it, it, your exploration of this topic, you were trying to figure out what was going on with this chunk of the American electorate that was enthusiastic about Trump in the 2016 Republican primaries and what made them different from a traditional Republican or maybe some of their fellow Republicans, um, but now that Trump is off the political scene, at least for now, temporarily, we'll see. Um, you know, what? How do you think your thesis about alienation, about community, um, and about where we are, uh, not only within our towns and our cities and our suburbs, but as related as we relate to each other as Americans, how does that fit into our current political moment, where it seems like? across the board, even in some of the the holdout communities that were strong in your book, it seems mm-hmm. like, it almost seems to me like the Trump voters were right. The institutions that tied us together were weaker than I thought they were. Yeah. So um, first, when I was looking at it, I was looking at the, not the 47% of the country that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 or, or again in 2020, but the folks who I would show up at a, a rally three months ahead of the primary and people who said they'd never voted were now waiting five hours to go hear a politician speak. And then if you looked at um, Trump's, the, the most conservative counties in Iowa, for instance, or some of the most conservative states, Utah, where I happen to be right now, those were the places where in the primaries, guys like Ted Cruz were winning. In general, Trump would win these places. So just it was, who was a person who was first sort of who were the people who were pulled out of the woodwork, who were motivated like they had never been motivated before by Trump, which was, as you said, a very different demographic than your standard either Cruz or Rubio or more establishment John Kasich or Jeb Bush type voter. Very different than the people I run with in Washington, you know, who have been at National Review or the Heritage Foundation or my colleagues at AEI. So and my analysis then was that the, there were people who said, yeah, everything's fallen apart. America's not great. Our institutions have crumbled. But then here in Salt Lake, where you've got an incredibly strong church, Church of Latter-day Saints, um, their people were saying, no, I, I don't think things have fallen apart. I don't want to burn down the whole system. My kids have a good public school. We have a tight-knit community. We leave our bikes on the front lawn. We know our neighbors. We trust our neighbors. Um, there, so that was sort of the divide. And it showed up on a map in those early primaries, right? Where Trump support was the strongest, that's where community was weakest. General election, totally different story. Obviously, millions of people were voting for the Republican or against Hillary or would come around to love Trump. 
So what does it look like now? That's, <laughs> that's a lot tougher question in part because so many of the, the lines get blurred. Um, a lot of, a lot of what it means to be an evangelical Christian, for instance, has actually changed in the last four years, which is sort of shocking that a huge sort of chunk definition of American Christianity would change because of who the president was, or at least seemingly because of who the president was. And our institutions have not held up well, as, as you're saying. Um, the media was about as dis- untrustworthy as Trump said it was. <laughs> um, but And we are all more at one another's throats. So what was a cause? What was an effect? I always said Trump was an effect more than a cause. Um, I think you're trying to say uh, when he said in 2015, the American dream is dead, that the last five years have proved him right. Is that your suggestion? A, a little bit, I guess. Um, as as somebody who, you know, very much identified as like a constitutional conservative Tea Party, I was a Cruz supporter in that primary, initially very opposed to Trump. I think for a lot of the reasons that you lay out, um, although I, I don't fit your, your profile and some others, but um, because I fundamentally still did trust a lot of the institutions in the United mm-hmm. States, even if I saw a kind of progressive takeover of those institutions happening, I realized that was happening in the academy or in the schools, perhaps. But I didn't realize that the rot had proceeded as far, for example, into the FBI or um, some some mm-hmm. of these uh, law and order institutions in the United States. And I, I just found myself more and more agreeing um, as I was sort of rereading because I read your book when you released it. And I was going back and reminding myself and rereading, I, I found myself, you know, agreeing much more with the Trump voters that you yep. talk to or profile than I would have in 2016. And and so, yeah, the idea that you simply can't get a fair shake in this world was really one of the best ways of predicting who would vote for Trump. I um, And so another way of looking at it is there was a, a Twitter hashtag. I don't know if people still use it, but it was new rules. In other words, it was people in 2015 and 2016 saying like, oh, well, nobody on the left actually plays by rules. So we conservatives are going to do that too. We're going to be the Saul Alinskyite. We're going to do this. And the conservative response has always been, you know, to channel Edmund Burke, to channel Russell Kirk and saying, you can't, um, we have to play by rules. That's part of what defines us as conservatives. So we can't try to use uh, the the federal government to accomplish what co- culture should accomplish or a local government should accomplish. We can't try to use the courts to advance politics. We can't, can't try to use the FBI. Nobody would ever use the FBI to try to t- tilt the outcome of an election, right? And then the last five years have made us say, wait a second, nobody's playing by the rules. I, the way I put it is, especially the speech police, like uh, Twitter, Facebook, there are rules. The speech police are dirty cops and they have rules. But it's like a dirty cop who just wants to say, I know that guy. I want to lock him up. Could even be a good cop who points at the bad guy and says, I want to lock him up. So the rules are just excuses. So the good guys, you know, the the, the good guys break the rules and there's no punishment. There's a, a, a prop 
propagandist from North Korea is currently on Twitter, and Donald Trump got kicked off nine months ago. There are there are no none of these rules. You know, the the most racist thing in the world can fly out of the mouth of a, a Democrat, either somebody attacking uh, Larry Elder or Maxine Waters, or the most violent thing can fly out of the mouth, and there's no repercussions for that. And so that has caused a lot of conservatives to say we are idiots by trying to be polite. We are idiots by, by, um, you know, thinking that we can play by rules and still win. I'm not ready. Maybe I'm just too deep seated, a, a rule following conservative. I'm not ready to, uh, say that's true, but I am ready to say like, we, we have to assume the worst of so much of our institutions yet still rely on them. And that's really tough, right? Like I earlier tweeted out, here are numbers about how likely you were to get hospitalized if you were vaccinated versus if you weren't. For these numbers, I have to rely on health authorities like the CDC and my county government. I know that people atop these health authorities have lied to us for political purposes and abused their power. Yet I've got nothing else to turn to if I'm just going to say, well, their numbers are all totally made up. So I'm not saying it's an easy position, but I'm just not ready to say it's it's all a big pile of lies and let's burn it down. I mean, I, I, I think that's really the crux of the paralyzation that a lot of people on the right feel, right, is that we've realized that our current institutions are rotten, but the challenge of building good institutions seems so daunting. And on, on mm-hmm. the flip side, um, you know, the, the idea of, and maybe there are folks on the right that are, don't feel as much this way as I do, but the idea of living in a country without any institutional gatekeepers and without any kind of institutional trust seems to me to be really scary and something um, that will reverse a lot of the stability that Americans unconsciously rely on about their country. Um, But let's, let's, before we get into that, like kind of heavy question of where where we go from here, I want to draw out from you a little bit more about the thesis of your book for folks who might not have read it. And I highly recommend reading it. Um, You know, famously there's, there's the Belmont and Fishtown example that Charles Murray drew out, but you have a kind of different parallel here. You talk about a small Dutch town um, or Dutch heavy town, I should say, yeah. um, where community ties are strong. You also point to some communities in Utah where you're at right now, um, among Mormon communities, basically places where the income level, um, might be a little bit higher than average because there are so many married families there. Um, but definitely is not in what we might call an elite enclave, a Belmont, yeah. right? Um, and then you point to the more Belmont style enclave where the same thick community, uh, actually still exists. And you point to Chevy Chase, which is uh, a community that has an average income, I think you say of over $400,000 a year, right? So one of those yeah. super zips, super, super elite community. And you basically say, we can duplicate or we can try to duplicate perhaps one of these things, but we can't have an endless series of super zips. Could you I, explain yeah. a little bit more about that? I do think a lot of liberal policy is an attempt to sort of make more elites, right? (laughs) They look around and they say, hey, and one of the points of my discussion of Chevy Chase, the the version of uh, the real life version of, of Belmont was to say, okay, conservatives, 
if you believe that the left is a bunch of swinger drug addicts, you know, whatever, um, polyamorous feminists, you're, you're misinterpreting them that they're T-ball coaches and married parents of two who get involved in their kid's school and, and get involved in their community. The, and Charles Murray says this in, in coming apart that the left, the secular elite left is practicing what the religious right is, is preaching. Um, but the, 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 I introduced sort of the third thing besides the, the working class town, the small, basically middle class uh, conservative places that are built around a specific church. So the Dutch Reformed Church, Christian Reformed Church and Reformed Church America, Reformed Church of America that sort of are always side by side in these towns like Oostburg, Wisconsin, uh, Orange City, Iowa, where everybody is named Vander something. Um, those build the same sort of um, uh, civic infrastructure that really helps people thrive in their lives in their families, in their careers. And that, that is uh, the fundamental difference that some portion of America lives in either a Chevy Chase or an Oostburg where things are hanging together. And a lot of America working class America lives in Charles Murray would use uh, what he calls fish town, an old neighborhood in Philadelphia. I use union town, Pennsylvania um, where it's not just that the, factory disappeared. It's that when the factory disappeared, a lot of the civic bonds were eroded too. So that people stopped going to church, stopped getting involved in their public schools. The, the local roller rink shut down. And that that is the cause of so much social woe in the U.S. Yeah. You know, you really highlight the role of church and of religion um, over and over in this book as not just and and not in an evangelical small e evangelical i know you're a catholic but evangelical way in the sense that um that you actually talk remarkably little about doctrine and what yep. people actually hear in church you're looking at this more from the sociological perspective and saying what it is what is it about church attendance and not just identification on a survey as a christian not just belief um but what is it about this attendance that creates and spins off all these little tiny platoons and community. Um, you know, I guess as part of the, the rising nuns, N-O-N-E, right? Um, how do you see that role of the church either coming back in some way um, into what seems like increasingly secularized life? Or alternatively, do you see anything that might be able to fill some of those roles, even if it can't fill the theological role of salvation, fill some of those community holes um, that you point out spring up when essentially the church retreats from public life? I mean, it's, it's a great question because sort of filling the vacuum is both what we can describe the things that we need and some of the things that are, are really negative in our culture because they're people don't ever really end up being irreligious is one of the things I'm increasingly becoming convinced of. You look at the public schools now in most of the country, you look at the, you know, I, when we were young, the left was like relativists, right? And now it's a very, very strong religion of, of wokeness regarding sexuality and race and all that stuff. And it's got to be seen as something like a religion. Um, and so something will fill the void. 
the kind of um, elite uh, version of church. First of all, if you go to Chevy Chase, there's more people in the pews at Blessed Sacrament in Chevy Chase, which is uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's parish, than there are down in rural southern Maryland. Okay, so they go to church more than either they might like to admit or conservative, uh, you know, blue collar Christian might like to admit about the about the elite left. But they have all sorts of other institutions that fill in a very imperfect way the role that church played. And that is a more active Little League. That is a, you know, alumni association. That is a, uh, in Chevy Chase, there are 10 committees all run by volunteers of the county government in a village of 2,000 people, okay? It's incredibly robust with the way people are volunteering, giving their activity. They find a sense of meaning in that volunteering. They find a human level uh, mentoring, uh, a, a safety net, which you might not need as much when your income is 400,000, but still, when something bad happens, there's neighbors there to, to help take care of you. And the, I, I guess the, the biggest lesson there again is, it's about the, the institutions and that when you have, if you, you can't just have a kind of neighborliness, right? If something's going to take the place of an institution that disappeared, it's got to itself be an institution. And my AEI colleague, Yuval Levin, writes about this too. And maybe a strong public library or a strong public school with actual local control, not just top down from a, a state government, maybe those can fill the role. I'm skeptical. I, the middle class in America has never had anything besides church that acted as that central uh, institution. But also uh, we should talk about what else sort of fills that, that uh, vacuum created in a deinstitutionalized, secularized country because I think, um, I know that a lot of liberals have admitted in the last couple of years that they were rooting for secularization and they thought a secularized right, the end of the religious right was going to be good and they could pick these people off and then they see the secularized right, in my mind, uh, manifested itself on on January 6th with people believing in various conspiracy theories, risking and sacrificing their lives uh, and their livelihoods uh, in in pursuit of something that they thought was greater than themselves. Yeah, the the post um, the post religious right, uh, I think, is not going to look anything like the liberal left thought it was going to look. Um, But Use a lot of the things you point to that do provide those opportunities, for example, to sit on those committees in Chevy Chase or um, yeah. to, in, in your examples, right, to, to coach girls basketball for kindergartners, right? Um, a lot of those things seem to rely very heavily on physical presence and actually, yes. and even accidental, just like the bumping into somebody on the way to, to run an errand, um, but actual physical connection with people talking to each other um, face-to-face in the 3D meet space, right? Um, it, the, the, the elephant in the room here is that it seems that we are likely to continue to live more of our lives digitally and online. Yeah. And of course, the pandemic has accelerated that. Um, than we have in the past, you know, how do we, how do we couple together? How do we use these digital technologies yeah. in a way that's actually helpful instead of 
increasing atomization? And then two, how do we revive real life human connection and, and reasons to reach out to each other and meet up and become that web of connection for each other in a digital age? I mean, my theory is that the answer to both of those is the same, that what technology, social media has to be put in service of getting people together physically. So that is use Facebook to plan your high school reunion. Use Facebook to organize a t-ball team. I mean, the the girls uh, basketball team that you referred to, that happened because, again, a, a guy I go to church with saw me after mass and thought, oh, we need a coach. I bet Carney can do it. And there was no, you know, the, the way we work. And if you remember, if you miss the office place, like, like I did for so many years, um, we're just not smart enough to plan everything. We need our life to have unplanned, unexpected things. It's, it's what I do in my job. I mean, the, the encounters I described in the book, the people I've talked to out here in uh, Oklahoma and sorry, in Salt Lake City, the most interesting conversations were literally people I found by walking around and bumping into them on a street corner. And so that serendipitous encounter needs to be part of our life. But also we, the ideological sorting that can happen when we build our, our sort of posses online is destructive not just because we don't hear competing points of view, but just because if that becomes what we're rallied around, then that ideology or something becomes our, our sort of lodestar. Well, if you're rallied around all your kids go to the same local school, well, then you're organized around a principle outside of yourself and greater than yourself, but very concrete. We are going to raise these children, not just my own children, but all the children of the community. That's a concrete thing that's outside of yourself and greater. And that's the organizing principle of great institutions of civil society. And very few things on the Internet even try to do that. And I don't think I don't think they can pull it off. Yeah, that's also an organizing principle that leaves room for a lot of diversity in a genuine sense. Um, and I, I mean, of ethnic background and of class um, and, and different ideological perspectives, whereas you're right, I mean, uh, sort of chosen communities on the internet do the opposite. They isolate us into echo chambers, whether that's of ideology or fandom or, you know, people come together on the internet because they're interested in one specific thing that they have in common, um, as opposed to kind of being a larger cross-section. But one of the the real ways where we've gone the opposite direction in terms of, of um, th that we used to be more diverse than we are today. Obviously, we're more ethnically diverse than we used to be. Um, there are fewer racial barriers, at least um, formal racial barriers. Um, we're more integrated in, in, in the racial sense. But you point out in this book, we are actually becoming more segregated by class than yep. we used to be. It didn't used to be the case that um, the only kids that your kids would play with or go to school with um, would be from people around your same income, probably having the same kind of managerial class jobs um, as mom and dad do. Um, you know, what's the role here of class um, in the in the deeper sense, not just in like the income dollars and cents, but of yeah. of, of the the class polarization here? And how do we how do we build um, or create institutions that put people next to each other from different class backgrounds? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that right now, and this is central in, in uh, Charles Murray's work, and I point to other 
um, other sociologists who look at that. And if you and your spouse have a college education, your kids are probably playing on the block with other children of elites. And I say elites because that's what one third of Americans over the age of 25 have a college degree. And that surprises people. Every time I tell that to young people who are in college, they are shocked because all of them have one or two parents who have a college degree and most of their friends were the same way. There was a great bubble moment um, just happened to me. I, I found out that uh, a vast majority of people are currently working in the office basically every day and that only about half of the country sort of ever telecommuted during this pandemic. And meanwhile, I was like the guy who was going to the office in, in my neighborhood, in my friend circle of friends, just because um, my wife wanted me out of the house and I wanted the quietude of the office as opposed to my six kids running around. And so in, there's a good chance that if you work from home, all your friends work from home, but then the middle class and the working class were out of work for a while. They weren't teleworking. They were out of work and then they were going to work. And so the, the bubbleness is, is huge. And again, that's Murray and coming apart. And then you see it reflect itself um, as different things become not just political markers, but class markers. And during the pandemic, um, we see that very clearly. A mask, a, um, you know, uh, bragging about which vaccine you got. These are ways of you saying, I'm, I'm one of you. And I'm one of you is not just I'm in your tribe, but I'm, I'm in the better tribe. And meanwhile, in, in the working class, the, there's you know, just as large of a, a, a chauvinism. It's you snobs aren't going to tell us what to do. Um, and when that gets into like decisions about your health care, I think that gets pretty destructive one way or another, whether it's, you know, forcing your kids, your two-year-old to wear a mask on the playground or refusing to get vaccinated and all of these things, these outward markers essentially are more class markers than they are ideological markers. There's obviously bleed over in either way. Um, and again, I think the solution is church. You come to my parish, St. Andrew Apostle, we have uh, lobbyists who will like try to pitch me stories in the parking lot. And we have kids who are getting dropped off from taxi cabs because their dad's a taxi cab driver. Um, and I'm not saying a lot of church in America, local congregations are very segregated, but a lot of times that's where the, uh, the integration happens. Um, I, I would be surprised if you couldn't convince some liberal neighbors to say, I want you to really build new housing in such a way that the CEO is likely to live next door to the janitor who cleans the building. That seems like that's something that sort of urban planners who are on the left should be willing to try when, in fact, they tend to be doing the opposite, right? They're drawing school districts for themselves and their kids that they don't have to worry about, um, you know, the poorer people, the immigrants being in their kids' school. You know, it's interesting because you point so much to the role of class as you just did and you do in your book as well. Um, but you reject what I think is increasingly a position that is ironically held by libertarians and Marxists, right? Which is a sort of economic maximalist position, right? That yeah. your um, economic trajectory, future um, opportunity 
is the sum of your either connectedness or alienation. And that the problems, the cultural problems, there's increasingly a lot of folks on the right, for example, who say, well, the cultural problems are actually connected to the economic problems and the economic problems proceed. We don't have strong families because we don't have the, the proper amount of support for the single um, the the single head of household working family, right? So to, uh, to have the economic situation where a father can support an entire family where mom yeah. can stay home. And then on, on, on the sort of dissident right, I mean, dissident left, that is the folks who reject a lot about the wokes and think that that is a cover um, that somehow obscures the real analysis that talking about race and sex and gender actually are are just covers for um, the underlying economic inequality and class inequality uh, that is truly driving a lot of the problems um, that the left is quote unquote trying to address, right? But you're kind of saying something different than both that yes. part of the right and the left. You're saying actually the heart of what's causing us, you know, ailment as a country is cultural and it's only sort of connected or secondarily economic. Yes. And so sometimes I use the analogy that the first domino is the factory falling. And if you could go back in time and protect that factory, if your tariffs could actually keep that steel mill in Uniontown operating, what, what, what writing and reporting alienated America convinced me of is I would be paying, I would be willing to pay high economic costs to keep that steel mill operating. That the negative downstream effects of that factory closing um, weren't just lower wages for these people as they moved to the service sector. It was deaths of despair. It was, uh, and people falling away from the Catholic church, which I think is, is a bad thing. Um, but to the degree I'm still a libertarian, it's that I don't trust that you could actually keep that factory open. Um, but also, I think we can't ignore that the culture often causes the economics. And that's so easy to see when you visit some of these places. If you um, I, I talk about Uniontown, Pennsylvania, it's uh, just a, an hour south of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's doing very well economically. They both were dependent on coal and steel. But Pittsburgh had been planted with all sorts of institutions by the, the billionaires who lived there, basically. And these institutions, libraries, colleges, hospitals, yes, they kept the money flowing. But more important, they kept the human capital intact. And so uh, when – and you didn't have that. The, the institutions were a lot thinner in rural Pennsylvania just because uh, it was sort of being sparsely populated – uh, the the weakness of the the Catholic Church as opposed compared to other churches in the in the U.S. meant that when the economy collapsed, life collapsed. So twenty years later, an employer comes by and says, "Hey, Western PA has a lot of unemployed men," and they find them in Pittsburgh, and they're still married to their wives, and <laughs> they're trying to raise a kid, and um, their lives are together, and then they go to Uniontown, and the women are raising their kids without a husband around and the husband or the dad, the dad might be addicted to drugs. So the cultural collapse makes it impossible to sort of rebuild the economy. So that's one of the things I would say to sort of my economically populist conservative friends is don't underestimate the degree to which the culture impacts the economics and not just the other way around. 
And I, I'm glad you brought up sort of a lot of the anti-woke left, because I think their problem is a hyper-individualism. And a lot of these people are people who grew up in a, in a community and just like, I'm nothing like any of my friends. I'm nothing like any of my neighbors, my classmates. I'm my own individual. And then they come and they land in New York or Washington or LA and they think everybody else is like them. But they're really the outliers. Human beings need to be in tribes. The idea that tribalism is a bad thing is, is kind of ridiculous. I know what you mean by it. You don't want to be like murdering people from the other tribe, but human beings need to have an identity which is formed by kind of the things we belong to. Now, ideally, it's not, you know, white people versus black people, a la the American South, um, uh, through much of our history. And ideally, it's not violent. But really, you have to have somebody forms their identity. I'm Catholic. I'm Irish. I'm an American. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Mets fan. All of these things form who I am. So I'm letting other people, the other Mets fans, the other Irish, the other Catholic, the other New Yorkers, sort of determine who I am. That's not really a, a super individualistic thing to say. I don't think my friends Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, would, who's at AI, I don't think he would say that. He likes to think that TCW made TCW. And I would say, no, the, the, you're a you're member of a tribe, and your things you belong to form your identity, and that matters. Um, what is the role of ethnic identity as opposed to racial identity mm -hmm. here? Because you said you're um, an Irish uh, person, you're a Catholic. Um, we talked a little bit about the role of religion already. But having just moved to New York City fairly recently, um, one of the things that I think would surprise a lot of folks on the right is how well these kind of ethnic neighborhoods live side mm -hmm. by side in New York city. Like it really is a ethnic polyglot and not really a melting pot, but somehow yeah. people from all over the world, um, even though they, they quote unquote balkanize, it's not a, a, a sort of harsh balkanization. They do interact with each other, but this, the simultaneous ethnic identities, plural, many, many plural seem to rub alongside each other without I think yeah. a lot of the, the friction that people who say they're really worried about tribalism are worried about. The, and again, like a, a mosaic or a quilt work instead of a, a melting pot is my kind of dream of America. I don't want us all to sort of blend into one. And that puts me at odds with some conservatives. I mean, remember, I think it was Pete Hegseth on Fox News said, well, I'm Norwegian, but I kind of wish that nobody identified as any hyphenated American. We should all just be Americans. And I know exactly where they're coming from because you often see diversity as a way to try to sort of tear people apart. But again, I, I just think it's, it's unrealistic. It's fundamentally true that we need to belong to something. And if you go into one of these Polish neighborhoods in uh, Chicago or Pittsburgh or a Serbian neighborhood or these Dutch towns in the Midwest, um, you will see, yeah, you might be something of an outsider. You'll see people welcome you to some extent and then not welcome you to a 100% extent. That's really offensive to some people or sort of Tocqueville talked about our egalitarianness, how we want sort of everybody to fit in everywhere. But ethnic identity really is an important thing. It's where you get music. It's where you get food. It's where you get faith. It's where you get family. The way I put in Alienated America is that it's a little platoon that transcends time and and uh, defies death. It's your your children and your grandchildren and your ancestors. 
And that if you look at the places where you get a lot of the worst outcomes in the U.S., you've got inner cities and you've got, say, Appalachia. So poor black broken communities, poor white broken communities. African-Americans in the inner cities, they were sort of almost, they were forced to come up here from the South after they were forcibly removed from where their roots are. Deracination means pulling something up by their roots. That's the history of African-Americans in inner cities was they were forcibly pulled up by their roots. The funny thing about middle America, I mean, about Appalachia is we kind of know a lot of them are Scots-Irish, right? But on the census, the number one answer in most of these West Virginia counties, what is your ancestry? While I would say Irish, well, somebody else, you know, might say Dutch. They all just say American. It's an open-ended question. What are you? I'm just American. Is that an expression of patriotism? Sure. Is it also an expression of sort of a rootlessness? I think so. And I think it's not coincidental that that correlates with a lot of bad life outcomes. That's so interesting um, to me personally, not to, not that my own background is so fascinating on this regard, but uh, you know, I, my parents are immigrants um, and growing up, I really wanted to identify as the person who wrote the American, uh, you know, on, on, on the census, on my, my tests, because I saw this hyphenated identity um, as a threat to an American identity. And I, I think the older I get, the more I think the hyphenated part can and should coexist alongside, although I still would say, I mean, you cannot put those various identities ahead of your your first, your national identity as an mm-hmm. American or a polyglot society doesn't work. And even if you look at the microcosm of New York, the one thing all of these people strongly identify as, right, is New Yorkers. Um, yeah. And, and that's a very strong identity as well. But I, I, I have to say, I'm perhaps moving more towards the position you've articulated here in, in the fact that ethnic identity or culture, food, tradition, um, and, and culture, I mean, like folkways, essentially, um, yeah. that, that that can be a really powerful force in your life um, without it being tribalistic or completely exclusionary. Um, but... I mean, other other folks. So, so the the left has the critique of of, of what you're saying here. The 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 right, um, the sort of economic populist right, has a critique of what you're saying here. Um, and then you come to the critique that is not really a critique, but a uh, I'm not going to try to I'm not going to pr- pronounce the French phrase for cry of the heart, but <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make a fool of myself. But um, the the sort of um, despairing cry, right? Like because it seems that the atomization that you're writing about in this book um, is touched on very eloquently um, in Michelle Holubek's novels as well. Uh, But he doesn't seem to think that there is anything left of the West, uh, of of the Western Mm -hmm. sort of soul and and folkways and, and connection to actually spin any of these institutions out of anymore. He seems to think that modernity once instituted in our hearts cannot be undone. And, and there's a certain part of me that's sympathetic to that, especially when you talk about the role of the church, for example, which seems totally out of reach for me as a, you know, whatever childless mm-hmm. millennial living in New York City with with no um, strong, you know, sort of faith ties or whatever. You know, how, how do we, how do we uh, sort of will ourselves or can we will ourselves out of a state of atomization or, do we get trapped in that kind of atomization um, in a way that 
is is impossible to to move backwards. Atomization is certainly self reinforcing. Um, in part because it drives you more to the internet. <laughs> the less you, you have friends and neighbors, the more time you spend on the internet and the angrier you become at the world and the less you see it. And um, it also drives centralization of government because the less you see that you could, I always say man's a political animal, as Aristotle said, and conservative libertarianish people sometimes be like, that doesn't mean you're supposed to meddle in other people's business. I say, it kind of does. You're supposed to shape the world around you. I shape the world around me by running a t-ball team or by lobbying my local government or by volunteering. If you don't get involved with those, you try to shape the world around you by accomplishing your goals, you know, on national political scale. And the more that that happens, the more power centralizes and thus more alienation and atomization. So it is a self-reinforcing um, Thing. The further away people get from religion, the more alien it seems to them. The fewer people you see walking around with kids or going to church, the more it seems like a, a bizarre thing to do. Um, so I would just say, I mean, the, America's incredibly diverse. And in, in Salt Lake City, which is, you know, only something like 45% Mormon now, um, but right outside of here in Utah County, is uh, it's 80 percent uh mormon and their a, a big family is normal and people leave their bikes on the front porch on uh, the front yard precisely because there is high high social trust um and so how do we sort of re you know we're not going we said early on you can't make everybody an elite um you also can't make everybody a mormon <laughs> and i wouldn't want that um but to some extent we can i think on local levels rally people around um, institutions dedicated to serving others. That's a key. If you're getting together because we need to build social capital and we need to have more friends, that doesn't work. You have to get together to serve other people. So little glimmers of hope. I do think the pandemic made us realize when we were locked down for those few months that we really need other people. Um, every church of every stripe around me has um, free food handouts. I would like to see that become a meal, right? Like instead of that, let's all get together for lunch or, or something like that. Um, I, I would think that if, if you somehow want to create a secular thing to replace the lost church, you'll only succeed imperfectly, but to the degree you will, it's people coming together to serve others in a concrete need and to have it be something bigger than themselves. And there's no national program that's going to do that. But I, I do think on a local level that could happen. I'm seeing signs of it happening with some of the groups I meet with. Will it generally happen or will we go more in the direction of alienation? I don't know. We've, we've had so many swings. It's so easy as a conservative to think everything just goes downhill. But the pendulum swings on lots of issues. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic, one of the things initially in the initial months of the pandemic that I saw coming back in Washington, D.C. Um, was stoop culture, right? So people yeah. sitting on their stoops and talking to each other at a distance outside. Um, I guess I'd like to wrap up here by asking you, because again, you're sort of bucking the right on this. You, you seem in this book, although it's not the primary topic, to kind of make an argument for at least small cities, for urban density, for
for yep. accidental encounters with a lot of different people that are, is, are really difficult. You have to kind of be intentional or arrange them more when you're in the suburbs because it's so car dependent, because you have yep. to, you know, drive everywhere. Um, you end up not having a lot of those sort of atoms bouncing at, against each other, uh, sort of accidental encounters as you would in a more dense environment. I mean, do you think that the drive um, out of some of the, the really big cities, in, in, especially when coupled now with, with crime rates and so on, um, will result in a kind of reinstitution of the 1950s suburbia era? Or do you think it's going to reinvigorate some of these towns and small cities here? I'm thinking about you know cities like Charlotte or, or Phoenix or um, even smaller towns than that, because um, those are obviously pretty big cities, but like, do you think that Charlottesville is going to get reinvigorated or do you think that it's going to be more of a move to re-suburbanize and intensify the suburban um, sort of move in America? I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about America is uh, diversity. I like to talk about how we, you know, we are too car dependent, but I also know there are a lot of people whose identity is wrapped up in their truck, right? That's where they get their happiness from. And I'm not one to tell them that that's, that's a bad thing. Just, you know, there's some things lost when, when you live in a car dependent world. And so I have brothers who moved out of New York and one moved to sort of a big um, semi-rural suburb another moved out to the woods um i know lots of people who moved to small cities to uh you know grand rapids michigan or even a smaller city a holland michigan um because they said well if i can live wherever i want i'm going to pick you know walkability and uh academics or 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 whatever it is that they they want to be surrounded by in their day-to-day life so i think we're going to see all of that will that be a negative sorting just like uh murray was talking about i don't know but i would i would like to think that when people move they're not just thinking i had one the best feedback i got in my book the whole time was this woman who said we were going to move and our question implicitly was what place gives us what we want? And after reading Alienated America, I realized that we needed to plant roots, which meant we had to give. So what place can we most productively and thoroughly give to of our time, our wisdom, our volunteering, et cetera? And that that really has got to be the, the question you ask when you get up and move is, where am I going to plant roots? Where am I going to contribute? Where am I going to find my meaning by serving other people? Um, and some people that's going to be more rural, some people that's going to be suburban, and, and some people that's going to be, you know, a very nice little neighborhood with a bunch of houses close together in, in Grand Rapids or even in, in Queens. Um. So Tim, thank you so much for for coming on High Noon. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on to talk about some of these themes. I think are are really subterranean to our politics, right? They're they're coming out more and more, but um, oftentimes it's easy to to gloss over this kind of analysis in favor of a more explicitly ideological or tribalistic yeah. analysis. Tribalistic in the not in the sense that we were talking about, but in the the sort of partisanship analysis. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Folks can can buy the book Alienated America, um, as well as finding uh, more, find more of your work, Tim, at AEI, um, at the Washington Examiner. You also write about corruption 
um, in, in our institution. So you do a lot of uh, really great first person reporting uh, in, in that regard, as well as 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 uh, as you can see, if my listeners can hear, Tim has been to many, many towns and cities and suburbs all over America. This is kind of his brand of reporting is, is going to go have have a beer at the local pub and, and see how people feel about things. So um, I highly recommend following his work in that regard. So thanks, Tim, once again for coming on. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.